A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and uh, all of your pets, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like drains, simplicity, and caution. Oh, I love that. And somebody on Twitter today recommended that we do the history of the straight line so i think we should we should put that put that down on our on our little list or we could do treats sheets and fleets i think fleets is one for the mariner's mirror leets streets and meets uh, that's that's meets double e so meetings rather than meets as in all sorts well, we of have done meetings, meaty things we? we have yes yeah 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 that was really really interesting it was uh, we we talked about meetings in um, soviet russia among it is and, and we don't want to do repeats however this is to digress <laughs> as ever uh, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example sam who knew that the history of honesty is in fact all about abraham lincoln a.k.a. Honest Abe. It's about shopkeeping. It's about oath-taking and the Bible. It's about US presidents and swearing-in ceremonies. It's about honesty among school children. It's also about Truth Serum, Pinocchio and George Washington. Or who knew that the history of cards is in fact all about the prize papers of the High Court of Admiralty, annotations, 17th century political culture and the Popish plot of 1678. It's about fashionability, gaming and leisure. It's also about gambling and other threats to moral society. It's about money, armada playing cards and German printmakers. Did you know all that, Sam? <laughs> of course you did. You produced it with me. I did. It's the, the joy of, of histories of the unexpected. I, I, I couldn't tell you what the history of simplicity or caution is about, but um, come back in a few weeks' time and I think I probably will be able to do that. You're probably wondering who is uh, doing all of this, introducing who is my fellow presenter. Let me just say that, well, you know, if history was a bone 
This man would stare with loving eyes until it was presented to him. He would then yip and yap with excitement as it neared his bowl. And finally, when he got that historical treat in his mouth, he would run outside and bury it in a secret spot under the roses. So it'd be his and his only... Uh, no, wait, wait a minute. That's obviously not what would happen. He would, instead of chewing or eating or burying the bone, he would, to the astonishment of all, place it on a type of doggy altar. He would check his little puppy microphone was working and then he would regale us all with tales about that wonderful historical bone. He is the most eloquent and educated puppy you have ever met, guardian of his historical treat. He is, of course, Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. You have totally outdone yourself today, Sam. <laughs> that was splendid. That's because it, it wasn't long ago when I had a puppy, so it was no. I put myself in the, in, the, in the puppy paws of my puppy. Yes. Well, and you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice? So ably helping Daybell co-pilot this episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a puppy-related historian, he'd only be the historical equivalent of a Crufts champion. Best show in every class. So well-groomed are his historical skills. So well-behaved is he in the archives. There is no peeing on the carpet of the past by this <laughs> pedigree bead of historian. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Very good. Uh, when is Crufts? What time of year is it? It, it can't be far away. Mm. It would never feels like far. Oh, no, it's actually it's always in a dark time of year when you, you're really desperate for something new to be on telly, and suddenly up pops Crufts. Yes, um, it's yeah, splendid, splendid. So we're doing puppies. We're doing puppies. Um, my idea, I think. I know. We 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 did a podcast on cats, and um, it was immensely popular. Well done, all of you who got involved with our podcast on cats. And um, I quite wanted to do one kittens, but we decided that was too similar to cats. But we went straight to puppies instead of dogs. And um, I wasn't quite sure what to do. Um, my, my initial thinking was about royalty keeping pets just because I'd been to, oh, I don't know, was it the National Gallery or perhaps somewhere in Amsterdam? And I'd seen, it was somewhere in Amsterdam, I think, and seen lots of um, portraits of nobility from the 17th century um, looking very splendid with equally splendid lap dogs and small animals. I'm not sure whether they were small dogs or puppies now I come to think of it. Um, but I realised that there was obviously um, a history there either of artists being required to demonstrate an ability to paint pets so that they would get the money they needed to survive or of... Um, uh, nobility and royalty wanting to be painted with pets and obviously the whole history of them actually acquiring those pets those puppies those specific breeds so I thought there'd be something kind of really fabulous there um, I also wondered whether there was going to be a history of pets as therapy animals um, I, okay I've, I have a, a small uh, working cocker spaniel and uh, he brings immense joy to anyone who looks after him uh, and there are animals out there which work as therapy animals and um, they bring joy to people who are uh, one way or another distressed. And I've suddenly thought, oh, I tell you what, I bet there's a history of that. Um, and as usual with histories of the unexpected, I, ne I didn't do either of those thoughts. <laughs> I ended up, <laughs> I ended up um, diving into the world of, uh, of puppy history and coming up with some completely different topics. Huh. Well, there... <laughs> Puppies for me is a slightly difficult subject at the moment. It's a perennial debate within the Daybell household about whether we should or should not get a puppy. We are completely divided down the middle, one adult and one child on both sides of the divide. 
Um, for me, uh, it's a no. I'm far too busy. I grew up with a little Springer Spaniel. Much as I loved her, I do not want... Um, I don't have time for all of this. Plus, uh, I just heard that um, my sister said that cockapoos are going for an extraordinary amount. £4,000 now for a cockapoo right. because there's such demand for them. So I was thinking, you know, how do we start thinking about the history of puppies, which is distinct from dogs per se? Uh, there's a wealth of stuff that one could cover about dogs from domestication. You could look at breeds and breeding during the Victorian period, which is when we get many of the sort of pedigree breeds developing. We could think about pets, as you talked about already. We could think about showing and dog shows, um, a Utility dogs, sort of practical dogs versus versus pets, the rise of the lap dog in the 18th century, um, spaniels being trained for hunting, disease and control, rabies and the dog tax. But for me, uh, this is about puppies and which got me thinking along different lines. So in literal terms, uh, I was thinking about you know, how do we think about puppies? What are puppies? Um, their meaning over over time, the history of getting and having puppies, which got me thinking about that campaign about 40 years or so ago, about how a, a, a puppy is not just for Christmas, um, which was basically uh, a campaign um, to educate people about having dogs and the responsibility of having dogs because in that year there were so many thousands of dogs that were being returned and at the same time we're in lockdown there is now an advert out for the dog is not just for lockdown so everyone is going out and getting dogs because they are at home and have time to deal with dogs however with poverty and with people returning back to work what will this do to dogs also the value of dogs as i was saying is shooting up which means that crime is on the rise so dog thefts and did you know sam willis did you know that dog thefts across devon and cornwall are higher than any other place in the country and there have been a 256 reports of dog theft in the last three years in this in this southwest of England. But this history of dog napping is not a new one because during the 18th century, it was massive and there were dogs targeted because they were of sentimental value. So people would pay to have their dogs returned. And there's a, a case of Elizabeth Barrett Browning think who has one of her dogs stolen uh, on several occasions and she pays for it to come to be given back to her writing in one of her letters I cannot endure to run cruel hazards about my poor flush which is the name of her dog for the sake of a few guineas or even for the sake of abstract principles of justice however I'm not going down the I'm not going down the the theft line I'm not going down the the, the sort of childhood puppy line i'm going down world war Two and presidential pets sam ah very good i know i think i i, I might end up with a presidential pet or two let me start with some viking stuff because uh histories of the unexpected we wrote a book on the vikings one of our little series we did the tudors we did world war Two. we did the vikings and we did the romans and the vikings are one of my favorite one and in it i came across the orkneyinga saga which is the history of the earls of orkney it's a wonderful um, wonderful primary source for the history of the vikings it was written in the late 12th century we think it no longer exists one of these fascinating 
histories. You, what you're reading is a kind of a, a copy. It's a, well, it, it, is, it is a copy, um, but it's a, a shadow of what had actually existed before. And the purpose of this saga is to give a sense of I think, social, cultural continuity. And you do it by uh, telling, telling of stories, telling of histories, um, which all have an, an entertaining uh, a narrative sort of motor or drive. Um, of all, out of all of the sagas, I think it's a particularly wonderful one. You can really visualise people sitting around, I don't know, in Iceland in the 13th century, listening to them. There's a particularly wonderful story in this about a, a Viking um, chief, uh, Jarl, um, a Norse or, or Danish chief, and he dies because of a puppy. According to the saga, who we've got here, we've got Rongvald Bruyssen, he was an Earl of Orkney, and then Throffin Sigurdsson. And together they, they've worked together, they've fought together, they've fought in England together and also in Scotland, but then they fall out and they end up um, fighting each other. Now, Rognvald is defeated at sea, but he, he escapes, he runs back to Norway uh, and then later is able to um, surprise his rival um, and then uh, fighting him, ends up pushing him all the way back to Caithness, which is where, where, um, where it ends. And this is what the, the saga describes what happened next. Rongvald, believing that Throfin had perished, took possession of the islands. Throfin, who had get, got secretly over to his dominions in Caithness, returned shortly afterwards and, surprising Rongvald in a house on Papa Stronze, burnt the house and all who were in it, except Rongvald, who sprang over the heads of the men who surrounded him and got away in the darkness. He concealed himself among the rocks by the shore, but was discovered by the barking of his lap dog and slain by Thorkel Fostri. Thus Thorfinn was again sole ruler of the Orkney earldom as well as that of Caithness. So there we have a, a, a puppy, a little lap dog, um, giving away, giving away its owner, leading to the death of a Viking chief. And um, I, I like that, having, having, having these dogs right at the centre of political events in uh, in the history of the Vikings. Um, the Viking relationship with dogs actually, full stop, is really interesting. Um, they were certainly used and appreciated for hunting, for herding, also as sled dogs. There's even some suggestion that they might have been used for fighting. Uh, a number of dog skeletons have actually been found in Viking graves in Valskard, which is an uh, amazing ancient centre of um, the Swedish kings, the pagan faith uh, in Sweden. It's halfway up on the right-hand side. Um, the... Uh, yeah, imagine a, imagine a uh, <laughs> you could call it the Middle East, the Middle East of Sweden. So not the north, not the south, somewhere down the middle on the right hand side. And that, of course, made me think more broadly about um, puppies and royalty. And there is a uh, uh, there's fantastic examples and stories here. Probably most famous, the King Charles Spaniel. And this is to do with Charles II in particular. Many paintings of Charles with his spaniels around him by his side. Um, lots of references to them, particularly um, Samuel Pepys, our favourite 17th century diarist. And he, he writes in the 1st of September 1666, All I observed there was the silliness of the king playing with his dog all the while and not minding the business. That was when Samuel Pepys was at a council meeting, at Charles II just playing with his dogs rather than looking after his kingdom, which I think is extraordinary given the, the, the amount of trouble that Charles had to go to to win it back. Anyway, there we go. Um, all sorts of other examples of famous people with puppies. And also, um, Marie Antoinette had, a, had a, a little puppy called Mops, 
which I thought was a rather splendid name, James. Oh, very good. I love the name Mops. If I do get a dog, which will never happen, uh, I shall call it Mops. Uh, Charles II, of course, had a, had one of his dogs napped. Uh, pilfered, stolen. Uh, there was an mm. advertisement out for it. Um, however, I want to think about how we do the history of dogs. How do we how do we know about dogs in the past? And one of the things that I think we should think about is sources and dogs. And one of the most interesting and eccentric sources of dogs is the Tring Dogs Museum. Now we've come across the Tring Museum in Hertfordshire before because it was established by Walter Rothschild. And remember when we did the history of the zebra we we looked at his zoological museum and the zebras in there. It is a shrine to Edwardian taxidermy. And I was reading a fascinating blog by a PhD student, Alison Skipper, who's a veterinary surgeon. And she's doing a PhD at King's in London, funded by the Wellcome Trust, or at least was when this blog was written. And it's part of the AHRC Pets and Family Life Project blog and what she talks about there is the amazing collections that are in the Tring Museum. Um, she also talks about the Natural History Museum um, and and basically the 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 Tring Museum is the annex of of this collection and what's fascinating is that it is a snapshot of the kind of Edwardian foundations of the museum. So it is basically people sending their dogs there where they are trying to keep a record for posterity of different breeds. So the kinds of breeds that they, that they have got. So rather like if we were thinking about this in relation to the Victoria and Albert Museum and gloves, whereas the Victoria and Albert Museum is out collecting you know, all sorts of fashionable gloves. So the Tring Museum is basically trying to record the kinds of fashionable um, and pedigree dogs that were around at the time of in, in Edwardian England. And we have one of the most famous uh, dogs being a Pekingese called Arkham, uh, who was apparently a canine celebrity stolen from the Chinese Imperial Palace in 1896. And he is thought of, thought to have been the grandfather of the British breed of Pekingese. And you can see him there in all his glory. What's amazing, though, with this collection is how pe how these dogs ended up there. Uh, so, much of it seems to not be from the perspective of the museum collecting, but just bizarre owners who send their dogs to the museum, either because they are thereafter um, putting their dogs there as a as a record or because they're too poor and need to have the dogs euthanized and put down and you know taxidermied if that is in fact a word um others there's an example of one chap who donated so many spaniels to the museum that the curator had to sort of turn them away in the end and there are people who arranged specially for the dogs to go there uh with all sorts of details associated with them and also those people who literally posted dead dogs to them. And there are all kinds of sort of different styles of dogs there. And one of the interesting things is the way in which this researcher has used this collection uh, to have a look at the emergence of breeds during the Edwardian period. But the difficulty is sometimes it it relies on the quality of the taxidermist 
to actually stuff the dogs in a way that they actually resembled what they did in real life. And there are some weird body shapes. Some dogs look like they would have done in, in real life. Others are a sort of rather mangled um, sort of uh, concoction. But I didn't want to talk about that. I wanted to talk instead about presidential do dogs. And there's a, there's a, a museum about presidential pets in the United States. Pets in the, in the US have a real, real interest. And in particular, puppies are really popular either when presidents faced scandal or when they needed more votes. So actually, puppies are connected to presidential politics and elections in the, uh, well, through in, in America during the 18th, 19th and 20th century. And all sorts of presidents had had pets or had puppies the obamas during their administration during barack obama's administration had uh, a couple of a couple of dogs uh, they didn't have them on the campaign trail however uh, barack obama promised that if he were elected then he would buy his daughters a puppy and this is all about getting people to empathize with him and sort of see him as a sort of you know as a sort of approachable family man um, and there are various other presidents who who had um, who used their dogs. Bill Clinton, for example, when he faced scandal with Monica Lewinsky, brought out a chocolate nab named Buddy, who appeared with him, and so the the dog was there in the public eye to sort of give people a much better impression of him when things were going poorly. But there's a whole range of animals that presidents would have had a whole range of people that like dogs and horses Abraham Lincoln for example his children had a whole menagerie of animals they had not only dogs but also cats goats ponies pigs and rabbits and even a turkey that was intended for uh, the Christmas table uh, in the White House was actually granted a last minute pardon Calvin Coolidge was also a, a dog lover. Theodore Roosevelt had five dogs, also five guinea pigs, 12 horses, garter snakes, a horned toad, a pony, two kangaroo rats, a flock of ducks, a flying squirrel, a badger, a pig, a blue macaw named Ellie Yale and more exotic animals. Many presidents were horse loving including George Washington, Andrew Jackson, Ulysses S. Grant, I could go on, Ronald Reagan. Barack Obama's puppy, uh, Bo Obama, had its own baseball card, which I thought was extraordinary. He was adopted by the Obamas as a little dog, a puppy, uh, when he was six months old. Uh, his Portuguese water dog. And um, in the summer, they put together a the White House team put together a, an official baseball card, loaded it with all sorts of facts about the about the dog. So America's first dog or first pet. Uh, and apparently you can still download it online. The Biden's dog uh, passed away, sadly, after 13 years on the 19th of June, uh, 2021. Uh, but one of the things that struck me most was Ronald Reagan's dog, Lucky. Uh, Ronald Reagan was pictured with this with this dog on several occasions. And one of the extraordinary things was that when he died, the, they produced a portrait of him, which was made out of 
Lucky's actual hair, which is slightly garish, but it shows the, the the sort of love, care and attention that presidents must have had for their dogs. So there we are, Sam. Tring Museum and presidential dogs. Well, do you know what? I mean, I have a good presidential dog story I was going to finish with, but I'm going to tell you about it mm. now because it'll fit nicely into what you've just been telling me. Superb. And this is all to do with uh, the Cold War and puppies as gifts. Now, puppies have been given regularly as gifts throughout history um, and not necessarily quite like this as a, as a gift to uh, reduce tensions in something like something as, as important as the Cold War. So the, the players here is you've got Nikita Khrushchev, who I've spoken uh, about before on our podcasts. Um, uh, he was first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union from 53 to 1964. And he uh, is enjoying a state dinner in Vienna with Jackie Kennedy. So the wife of President Kennedy. And um, they're having a chat about dogs. And what happens is that Khrushchev gifts a puppy called Pushinka which is Russian for fluffy, which is brilliant, to the Kennedys. Um, and it is actually widely believed to be one of the very few gifts that was subject to extreme scrutiny by the CIA over the potential that the puppy contained some sort of spyware. Anyway, um, not only is that an interesting example of diplomacy, uh, attempted diplomacy happening through the medium of the pup, um, but... I love this idea that the dog itself has a history. So you might think that puppies are you know, a kind of a, an ahistorical being. They're, they're given birth to by a dog, and that's, that's kind of it. Or do they come out of eggs, James? I'm not, I've never been quite sure about where puppies come from. Let's assume not they're out of, let's, let's, <laughs> let's assume not out of eggs. <laughs> OK, anyway, the point is, is that you, you, as a human, you might think that dogs don't have histories, but of course they do. Um, and so that's why they're particularly suited to histories of the unexpected. This particular puppy, the one given to uh, President Kennedy's wife by the first secretary of the Communist Party, called Pushinka, uh, has a significant family history. So not all puppies are the same. They carry a little... A bit of history in their little puppy veins, pumped around their little puppy bodies by their little puppy hearts, James. Um, the the mother of Pushinka was a pup was uh, called Strelka, and Strelka is a dog who, along with another called Belka, and a rabbit and forty two mice, some plants, two rats, flies, and various fungi, were believe it or not. Uh, the first Earth-born creatures to successfully go into space and return alive. So the mother of Pushinka was a massively important and famous dog in Russia in the 1960s. This happened in the summer of 1960, in August, and they all returned safely to Earth. So this is not the end of the story, because what happens is that this Russian gifted dog called uh, called Fluffy... Um, then has some some uh, doggy interactions with Charlie, who is President Kennedy's dog, resulting in the birth of four puppies, um, which JFK um, hilariously refers to as pupniks <laughs> because they're half Russian. Um, anyway, uh, the puppies of these dogs, uh, some of them given away, um, some of them stay with the Kennedys, but... Um, historians have actually traced the bloodline of these puppies and there were certainly living descendants of Pushinka um, uh, as, as recently as 2015, which I thought was wonderful. So I think the point here is that you, um, you've got dogs have their own 
have their own history. And there was a great deal of kind of cultural interest in in Russians sending dogs to space. There's a great story here um, about the, the American press responding to it. And um, this is an American newspaper um, that is commenting on uh, a dog called Laker, L-E-I-K-A, who unfortunately did not survive her journey into space. And the headlines were, every dog nick has its day nick, which I thought was very good. And a Chicago newspaper saying that the Russians are raising a new breed of dog, the Moongrel. <laughs> so not a mongrel, but a Moongrel. There we go. Um, so puppies in this case is all about the Cold War and the relationship between Russia and America. Oh, what a brilliant link, Sam. So I want to sort of go slightly earlier than that and think about dog puppies in World War Two. And one of the things that got me pondering was what on earth was their experience, was the dog experience, the puppy experience of, of World War Two? What role did they play, you know, particularly for children who were evacuees? How did they fit into... You know all the everything to do with you know leaving home or air raid shelters or what did people do with puppies during bombing, for example? So, my port of call was the People's History Project, which the BBC did many many years ago, an oral history project to record citizens' memories of World War Two. Huge oral history project. So I just had a little search around that, and I came up with some absolute treasures. So I've got a few stories for you here. This is Zena Proctor, who was a young girl in Barrow in Furness. And this story was contributed on the 2nd of September 2005. So she was recalling back to her childhood when she was 11. And she refers to a little puppy that she had called Rags. I called him Rags because he looked a proper ragamuffin. I was 11, living in Barrow in Furness. Barrow in furnace it became in other words the reference to the bombing rags was a stray puppy i had pleaded to be allowed to keep and he was the first thing i ever had that was really my own but they wouldn't let you take animals into the shelter so i had to leave him in the house during the raids but i kept thinking of him during one very bad raid a neighbor came into the shelter and told us that he had seen a parachutist come down i'll have the bugger he vowed and collected a knife to dispatch him. Then there was a terrific explosion. The ground rocked under our feet and through the shelter we saw the houses go down like a pack of cards. In fact, what the neighbour had seen coming in a parachute was actually a landmine. He had gone to his death. I could only think of Rags, my little dog. I was screaming for him. I got a smack for that, going on about that dog when all these people are dead. All I ever found of Rags was his ear. Oh, that's a really sad story. Uh, the tragedy of, of puppies being being killed. Um, hopefully the next one, which is a story of, of John Green, uh, who was in near Birmingham, um, remembers by 1939 strange new buildings being put up in the playground of our school. We soon found out that they were called air raid shelters. During the heaviest air raid of the Blitz on Birmingham, Bessie, our bulldog terrier bitch, gave birth to five pups in the burnt-out cupboard next to the chimney breast where the electric meter was installed. It was all melted and charred and she must have gone through agonies all alone in the dark that night. It was no surprise 
after that, when she started to have fits and bite everything and everybody in sight, soon she would have to be put down. My brother and I pleaded for her life, but in vain. My dad took her for a walk and came back alone with her collar and lead hanging from his overcoat pocket. He hung them from a hook in the pantry. Goodbye, bless. Hello, but hello, Jim. That was the name of the pup we chose from the litter. He looked just like his mum, pink and white with a small black spot over his left eye. Once, when an unexploded bomb had landed just up the street from us, we were told by an army officer in charge of the bomb disposal squad that we must... Sorry, Jamie, my... Once, when an unexploded bomb had landed just up the street from us, we were told by an army officer in charge of the bomb disposal squad that we must all leave our houses immediately and that we could take a few personal effects but no pets. What? Leave our dog? Not on your life, mate. Sorry, no pets, he repeated, and walked off down the road, slapping the side of his leg with a swagger stick. My brother and I were already tying a length of rope around the dog's neck, we had lost Bessie's collar in a previous air raid and never bought another one until after the war was ended. My mother had my little sister in the pram with a few things piled on top. Come on, you two, she shouted, and don't leave the dog. We didn't, and the bomb was made safe. Afterwards, we had a whip round for the bomb disposal squad, which they spent in the Cromwell Arms, our local pub. And one final one is a, a story of Richard Daniel Johnson, uh, who was was in the army, uh, location Europe. So the following uh, is, a, is an extract from his memoirs, which, uh, which one of his children um, uh, gave to this project. Whilst I was in France in the army, we took over a displaced persons camp. Going into dinner one day, we saw this pup trying to get into the swill bin. I picked him up and dropped him in it. When I came back again, he was so fat... He could not get out, so I lifted him out. After a few days, we moved on and I decided to take the pup with us. It was a smooth-coated mongrel terrier. The trouble was, now as the displaced persons were all around, so it was I decided that Jock would hold her. It was a bitch, and as the lorries started off, he would throw her to me in the lorry, then get himself on. She became the unofficial regimental pet, she slept at the bottom of my bed under my jerkin. She was ideal to have on patrol at night as the displaced persons would try to siphon the petrol out of the lorries lined up under the trees. She'd been naughty in Brussels and she was well advanced as we moved into Germany. In other words, I think she'd got pregnant. When the lorry pitched and tossed as we moved across the brick-covered roads, I thought we would lose the pups. She laid in the Tate sugar box on its side for a few days after we made camp she had her pups. I had to get up early to see to the boilers to get hot water for breakfast, etc. Mackie, as, and Mackie, as we called her. This was the name of the French resistance. Was in the marquee, so I went and had a look at her. There was a pup lying dead outside the box. I lifted the piece of canvas, and there seemed to be pups all over the place. I counted them, and there were eight. They were pretty as a picture. Mackie was a smooth-coated black and white, and the father was a rough-coated brown and white, so the litter composed of some of two colours and others with three colours. I put a notice on the cookhouse wall announcing the number of pups, for as usual there had been a sweepstake on it. There was great disbelief, so I had to make special times for the pups to be viewed. 
being RMQ, of course, the Colonel downwards had to see them. The doctor asked me what she had been fed on, and I told him we had been given here dehydrated meat and to make the vitamins... Up there were tins on the tables containing tablets. Some of the men used to chew the meat and place a couple of tablets in it and give it to her. Alas, I was injured and sent home, but I got a letter from the pay sergeant saying Jock was looking after Mackie and the pups had been found various homes. So a more touching tale there. So not only do we see the importance of little puppies for children who were evacuated, the loyalty of children looking after puppies during the Blitz, but also the just the, the, the sort of humanity that puppies gave to, and sentimentality that puppies gave to soldiers fighting in the Second World War. There we are, Sam, the varied history of World War II and puppies. Very good. Wonderful. Let me just finish with something just before the uh, Second World War. So this is 1936 and it's the wonderful John Steinbeck and it's his fabulous book of mice and men. And if you want to read a book about the Great Depression, about what's going on in 1930s America, there is no better book to read than of mice and men. Uh, what's fascinating about of mice and men, you may not know this, uh, but Steinbeck's Irish setter puppy ate half of it. Um, whilst the puppy was was teething, uh, and Steinbeck actually describes what happened. My setter pup, left alone one night, made confetti of about half my manuscript book. Two months' work to do over again. It set me back. There was no other draft. I was pretty mad, but the poor little fellow may have been acting critically. I didn't want to ruin a dog for a manuscript that I'm not sure is good at all. He only got an ordinary spanking. I'm not sure Toby didn't know what he was doing when he ate the first draft. I have promoted Toby Dog to be a lieutenant colonel in charge of literature. But as for the unpredictable literary enthusiasms of this country, well, I have little faith in them. So an actual example of a dog eating someone's homework. And I love the way that Steinbach took it on the chin and thought that the, the dog was acting like a literary cricket, critic and doing doing his best for it. So there we go. Uh, a fabulous little story on the history of puppies to end off with. I hope you've all enjoyed that very much. I have too. And there are many more puppy doggy tales that we can share with you in the future. If um, you guys want to follow us on social media, we'd hugely appreciate it. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please check out my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you want to follow the podcast on social media, it is on or we are on at Unexpected Pod. And we are also on Instagram and we are on Facebook. I also am on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. So check me out at James Daybell. And we have a lovely website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, which you can see everything that we've been up to in recent years. You can buy signed books. Uh, we still have quite a few left. Uh, we also have a Patreon page. Uh, should you uh, feel generous in supporting what we're trying to do with history? Thank you very much, guys, for listening. We'll be back again soon. Cheerio, bye. Take care, guys. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.